6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Psalms, chapters 3 through 10. O Lord my God, in Thee do I put my trust. Save me from all them that persecute me and deliver me lest he tear my soul like a lion, rendering it in pieces while there is none to deliver. Notice the change in from plural to singular. In verse 1, it says, all them that persecute me. It's a group. But his real concern shows up in verse 2, lest he, singular, tear my soul like a lion. He's talking about Saul. Saul's hearing all this false reports, getting angrier and angrier, and... and uh, uh, destroying any possibility of reconciliation with David. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there be iniquity in my hands, if I have rendered evil unto him that was at peace with me, yea, I have delivered him that without cause is mine enemy. Let the enemy persecute my soul, take it. Yea, let him tread down my life upon the earth and lay my honor in the dust, Selah. Now you understand that David had had two opportunities to kill Saul and didn't. He refused to do so. So he demonstrated his, his lack of malice in ways that Saul should have understood. And um, there's no personal malice here. For I have rend- if I have rendered evil unto him that was at peace with me, yea, I've delivered him with that, with that without cause is mine enemy. Twice. He had an enemy without cause. And he chose not to take advantage. If, if that's not the case, let the enemy persecute by saying, take it and let, yea, let him... Tread down my life upon the earth and lay mine honor in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in thine anger. Lift up thyself because of the rage of mine enemies and awake for me to the judgment that thou hast commanded. So shall the congregation of the people compass me round for their sakes. Therefore, return thou on high. Boy, we'd like to call that right now, wouldn't we? The Lord shall judge the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to thy righteousness and according to mine integrity that is in me. Boy, what a wonderful ability to make that claim. Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just, for the righteous God trieth the hearts and the reins. My defense is of God, which saveth the upright in heart. God judgeth the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he turn not, he will wet his sword. He hath bent his bow and made it ready. This is what Romans 12 essentially argues, that only God can truly vindicate. David's not trying to vindicate himself against his enemies. He's leaving that to the Lord. That's where we're supposed to do the same thing. He hath also prepared for him the instruments of death. He had ordained his arrows against the persecutors. Behold, he travaileth with iniquity and hath conceived mischief and brought forth falsehood. He made a pit and digged it and has fallen into the pitch, the ditch which he had made. It's on his enemies, obviously. He hath made a pit and digged it and has fallen into the ditch which he made. 
His mischief shall return upon his own head, and his violent dealing shall come down upon his own paint. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. The Lord Most High, that's a phrase that's very unique. It occurs relatively rare here. It's Yote Vave, El Elyon, the Most High. And this whole flavor here is what you might call retributive justice. Remember, Saul wanted to kill David, right? Saul died by his own sword. Pharaoh ordered the male babies drowned in the Nile in Egypt, remember? His own army drowned in the Red Sea. Haman built gallows to hang Mordecai in the book of Esther. Who, hung on, who was the first to hang on those gallows? Haman. I didn't bother to make the correction here because most people assume they're gallows. That's a mistranslation. They were impaled. It's crucifixion you're talking about, which was invented by the Persians. But that's a subtlety we don't have to deal with here. Now we get to Psalm 8. Now, you know, every once in a while, there's one of these gems that we really want to savor. And I don't want to shortchange Psalm 8. Let's just read it through first to the chief magician, musician on Githith, a Psalm of David. This one's a treasure. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passes through the paths of the seas. Ooh, there's an unusual word. We'll come back to that. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Psalm 8. It's one of a small group of what are called nature psalms. There's five of these that extol the focuses the natural world around us. This one is also one of the Messianic Psalms. And how do I know that? Because it's quoted as such in the New Testament as a Messianic Psalm. Matthew 21, 16, Jesus himself quotes it after he cleanses the temple. In Hebrews 2, 1 Corinthians 15, Ephesians 1, all quote this Psalm. So let's look at it a little more closely. To the chief musician upon a gittith, a psalm of David. Now, the gittith is a word that means a wine press. It apparently also must mean some kind of instrument, or possibly it's a reference to some vintage tune. It's a, who knows? That may be uh, culturally dependent. O Lord, our Lord. Now, it's not obvious, but there's a threefold confession there uh, that there's one God, that he created all people of the, in the earth, and, and uh, that. Uh, his people in particular are the people of his pasture, that they can say, our Lord. That's something in those days only a Jew could say. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens, beyond the atmosphere. Indeed. We'll talk a little bit about that. 
Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength. Does that sound familiar? It's because Jesus quotes it after he cleanses the temple. Because of thine enemies, thou, that, that thou mightest still, quiet down, that is, the enemy and the avenger. You know, the cry of Moses, a baby in the bulrushes, brought Egypt to its knees. Baby Samuel saved the nation and brought David to his throne. A babe in Bethlehem brought salvation to the world. Interesting. Then he goes on. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained. Wow. Ralph Waldo Emerson penned a line that I had to stick in the notes. If the stars came out only once in a century, everybody would gaze at them all night. Such a breathtaking spectacle we take for granted because it's there all the time. If it came out only on rare occasions, man, would we be overwhelmed with the majesty of just the stars at night. Interesting thought. Then this famous line, What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? What makes this even more emphatic in the Hebrew, the first word man there is enosh, which means weak and frail. The second, the son of man, as the word is adumah, born of the earth. Both are diminutives, in other words. For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. And it's actually Elohim, which is a, can be used as a generic term for God and the angels and that. But in any case, made him, he didn't make him a little above the animals, like science would have you believe, but a little lower than God and the angels. Big different, difference in perspective. And has crowned him with glory and honor. In the last Adam, of course. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. And thou hast put all things under his feet. See, the dominion, the entire creation is put under the dominion of Adam, and he blew it. He blew it. He gave the dominion to Satan by, by, through his rebellion. The last Adam has regained that dominion. And is going to put all things under our feet. And we'll talk about that from the New Testament here in a minute. But then that's expanded. All sheep and oxen, yea, the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea. And here is a line then that changed the world. And whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. In the 19th century, there's a guy that was impressed with that line from Psalm 8 and a similar line, a similar line in uh, Isaiah. Their paths in the sea, and from that he dedicated himself to find out that, and he ended up joining the Navy. He ended up eventually becoming the head of the hydrographic office. He had all the ships at sea keep records, take data and ship it in. And his name was Matthew Fontaine Murray, and he is recognized in all countries, not just America, as the father of oceanography. And if you go down to the Naval Academy, the uh, dormitory is called Bancroft Hall. There's a long walk down to the academic group, and the core building in the academic group is Murray Hall, named after Matthew Fontaine Murray. And uh, all because he was a Bible-reading believer. He saw this term, paths of the seas. He figured, gee, if there's paths, I want to figure out where they are. And he did, and that's changed. That's created the whole field of oceanography. 
I'll move on. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Praise his name. Let's take a look at some New Testament echoes of the same thing. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13. But to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool? The writer here is making a point that Christ is above the angels. Are they, are they, the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Angels are ministers. Our destiny is to rule. Many people don't realize that. The angels do not have the destiny that is in store for us in Christ. Romans 8, 29. Paul says, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to, to, to what? What's our destiny? to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That's our destiny, to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Hebrews again, chapter 2. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? That's out of Psalm 8, being quoted here, right? Or the son of man that thou visitest him. Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crowns him with glory and honor and did set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. 1 Corinthians 15. Again, this quote. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted that did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. He is going to correct, repair this fracture in God's universe that emerged from Genesis 3. Ephesians 1, starting about verse 20, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him up from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion. And every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. That's our destiny, far above the, far above the angels. 1 John 3, this is my, one of my favorites. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed on us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. And here's my favorite physics verse. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We know from his resurrection body that he enjoys many dimensions far beyond the three that we're familiar with. But whatever dimensionality he enjoys, we will also, because we'll see him as he is. We're not going to see a, a three-dimensional representation of a two-dimensional image or a four-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional image. We're going to enjoy whatever dimension he has. That's how many we'll have. Because 
When he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. You won't understand that unless you've done some studies in hyperspaces. Wild stuff, wild stuff. Anyway, Psalm 9. Let's knock off a couple more and we'll call it an evening. To the uh, chief musician on the Muslaban, a Psalm of David. Now this is one of those strange places, by the way, where the word Muslaban means the death to one coming between. And it has no bearing on Psalm 9 that we can find. There are some scholars that believe it really belongs as a tag to the previous one, referring to uh, you know, Goliath, the man between two hosts, a champion, and so forth. So some think this should be at the center of Psalm 8 and in front of Psalm 9. It's not that big a deal, except it's a caution flag to recognize some of these annotations, even though they're very ancient, still could be uh, uh, a scribal error, if you will. Verse Samuel 17 has the whole Goliath thing and so forth. That's where the word, same word appears. Okay, let's go into it. I will praise thee, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will show forth all thy marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O Most High. When mine enemies are turned back, they shall fall and perish at thy presence. Thou Most High, there again is this famous, this strange El Elyon, the same thing, name that Abraham used when he had... Uh, honoring God after the victory in Genesis 14 over the, nine, the battle of the nine kings. Continuing, for thou hast maintained thy right and my cause, thou sattest on the throne judging right, thou hast rebuked the heathen, thou hast destroyed the wicked, thou hast put out their name forever and ever. O thou enemy, destructions are come to a perpetual end. And thou hast destroyed cities, their memorial is perished with them, but the Lord shall endure forever, he hath prepared his throne for judgment. Now, there's a parallel passage to all this in Isaiah 25, the first half a dozen verses, if you like. Verse 5 here says, talks about blotting out a name that's, of course, a synonym for just destroying them. There are a lot of examples of that in the Scripture. And he shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. They that know thy name will put their trust in thee, for thou, O Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. Sing praises to the Lord which dwelleth in Zion. Declare among the people his doings. In uh, verse 8, the first to the top one here is, is quoted by Paul on Mars Hill in Athens, incidentally. And uh, in verse 9, it speaks of the times of trouble. What it really speaks of times of the uh, times of extremity. And it could end up becoming, it may, it may have a eschatological overtone. When he maketh inquisition for blood, he remembereth them. He forgetteth not the cry of the humble. Have mercy upon me, O Lord. Consider my trouble, which I suffer them that hate me. Thou that liftest me up from the gates of death, that I may show forth all thy praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I will rejoice in thy salvation. The inquisition for blood is an official investigation of guilt, is what the term really connotes there. The heathen are sunk down in the pit, that they made and the net which they hid is their own foot taken. Boy, how often we become trapped by our own snares here, huh? The Lord is known by the judgment which he executeth. The wicked is snared by the work of his own hands. Hagion, Selah. Hagion may here just mean meditation. Selah is that pause we talked about. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Boy. Okay. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the heathen be judged in thy sight. Put them in fear, O Lord. 
that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Selah. The word again here for man is enosh, which means weak or frail. And that's something that sinners won't admit. And we're going to see that amplified in Psalm 10. So let's take a quick look at 10. And it opens up. Why standest thou afar off, O Lord? Why hidest thyself in times of trouble? See, the problem in Psalm 9 was enemies from without. The problem in, in Psalm 10 will be the enemies from within. And this is really the paradox that this psalm is going to deal with, which is another way we phrase this, the age-old paradox. Why do the wicked prosper? Book of Job, etc., that kind of thing. Jeremiah 14, etc. Why standest thou far off, Lord? Why hidest thyself in times of trouble? Why isn't he there when we need him is sort of the thing here. This is going to talk about the beliefs of the wicked. The first belief of the wicked that we're dealing with, the first two, verses 2, 3, and 4, is there is no God. That's the belief of the wicked. The wicked, the wicked in his prize doth persecute the poor, let them be taken in the devices that they have imagined. For the wicked boasteth of his heart's desire, and blesseth the covetousness of whom the Lord reporteth. The wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. The problem of the atheist is not his intellect, it's his pride. His unwillingness to acknowledge the reality of design that he, all through nature. The second belief of the wicked is that he will not be moved. He can do what he likes. Verses 5 through 7. His ways are always grievous. Thy judgments are far above out of his sights. For all his enemies he puffeth at them. He hath said in his heart, I will not be moved. For I shall never be in adversity. Really. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and fraud. Under his tongue is mischief and vanity. Because he doesn't regard himself accountable to anyone. Is really the net of it. Okay. There's a third belief of the wicked, that God doesn't see him. Really. He sitteth in the lurking places of all of the villages. In the secret places doth he murder the innocent. His eyes are privately set against the poor. He lieth in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lieth in wait to catch the poor. He doth catch the poor when he draweth him into his net. Remember the small child asked his grandfather, does God see me when I'm alone? His grandfather very wisely said, God loves you so much that he can't take his eyes off you. <laughs> Great, I love that. I love that. He croucheth and humble himself that the poor may fall into it by his strong ones. He hath said in his heart, God hath forgotten. He hideth his face. He will never see it. So that's the third belief. The last belief is God will not judge me. A denial of the judgment. There is a final exam coming. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up thine hand, forget not the humble. Wherefore doth the wicked condemn God? He hath said in his heart, Thou wilt not require it. So those are the beliefs of the wicked. We might just review those over. Read those over again. There is no God. I shall not be moved. God doesn't see me. God will not judge me. Does these four views characterize sinners today? It's interesting, these ancient hymns by David, how relevant they are and getting more relevant to each of us these days. There are four rebuttals in this psalm before we finish it up. First of all, God does see what's going on. And this answers verses 8 to 11. The Lord pays, they think that the Lord pays no attention to what they're doing. Psalm, verse 14 says, Thou hast seen it, for thou hast beholdest mischief and spite and to require it with thy hand, 
The poor committeth himself unto thee. Thou art the helper of the fatherless. Okay. The second rebuttal, God does judge sin. Verse 15. And this answers the claim of verses 12 and 13 earlier. Break thou the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness till thou find none. And the third one, God is king. Lord is king forever and ever. The heathen are perished out of his hand. That's a rebuttal of uh, the first four verses of this song. And the last one, of course, is the declaration that God defends his people. Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble. Thou wilt prepare their heart. Thou wilt cause thine ear to hear, to judge the fathers and the oppressed, that the man of the earth may no more oppress. So there we have it. We've taken the first 10 Psalms, if you will. Now for the next session, I don't want you to just read. I want you to meditate on about the next, uh, you know, uh, 10 or so. 11 through 19. 19 may be a special case. That's, that's, the, that's the dessert. We may or may not get to it next time. If so, we'll make it a special one the following. But you might jump into those. And let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we do thank you that you are a God that is on the throne, one that we can rely on. And Lord, we do seek your mercy, certainly not your justice, for we are sinners. We acknowledge our sins of presumption, our sins of ingratitude, and our sins are many. But we're grateful that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins if we confess them and repent of them, to forgive them and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, we just do pray in this coming week that you would draw us ever closer to you, help us to begin and each, end each day with our heart focused on you and Jesus Christ, whom you have given to go to such extremes that we might have access to you. We just thank you, Father, and commit ourselves into your hands without any reservation whatsoever. In the name of Yeshua, our salvation, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Psalms. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. Or you can call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Mm -hmm.